You're listening to Cortez Community Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM. I'm Dee Clark, and this is Cortez Currents, which you can also access in text form at cortezcurrents.ca. Today we present Part 3 of a Cortez Current special feature, Cortez at Ferry Creek, in their own words. This story will be told in a series of half-hour segments. All of the segments will be available as podcasts on cortezcurrents.ca for your listening convenience. Most people are probably aware of the protest and blockade at Ferry Creek on Vancouver Island. For over a year, forest defenders have blocked a logging road to prevent logging company Teal Jones from cutting intact old-growth areas. For this special feature, I did a little oral history with seven local people who went to Ferry Creek to join that blockade. After a public appeal for interviewees, I managed to schedule recording dates with Margaret, Erin, Caitlin, Maya, and Danny from Blue Jay Lake Farm, and Cease and Christine from Whaletown. Their voices have been woven together to create a narrative from multiple points of view. I'd like to thank our interviewees, sincerely, for taking the time to tell their stories. I hope this series will convey something of how it felt to be there, on the ground at Ferry Creek. And I hope our listeners will find these first-hand accounts as fascinating and as revealing as I did during interview. The police presence at Ferry Creek became a major news story in its own right, In this third episode, I ask our friends and neighbors about their personal experiences with the RCMP. I think they should send every police officer who's going to work at Ferry Creek to an old growth forest for (laughs) a brief visit before they can go out and work there. Because, yeah, it's an impactful experience. Like, it's innumerable the amount of times I've heard a cop tell me how impressed they are by us, you know? Like, how much they respect us and what we do. Because they know exactly how hard they make it, you know? They know that we're hiking through the night. They know that we're cold and wet and hungry, you know? Because they're taking our stuff. (laughs) And... The number of times I've had a cop say, I totally agree with your side of things, you know? I totally agree that this old growth shouldn't be coming down. I think in a lot of ways, like, speaking to the cops, especially at Fair Creek, has taught me how aware people are of these problems, but how deeply embedded they are into a system that they feel they can't break out of Mm -hmm. and that they don't want to fight and that it provides their livelihood. There were a a number of times where three or four RCMP would walk into headquarters and, you know, leaving their cars out on the road and they would walk in and, and they were respectfully received by us. They were escorted from the moment they came through the gate, of course. They were doing their job. They, they, what they were really doing is sussing the whole place out, making sure they knew who was where and what, what was what, you know, and everything leading up to the big raid. I, I think they were just on reconnaissance missions, but they were on good behavior. They just asked how you were doing and, you know, and do you need anything? And, well, actually, no, sir, we're fine looking after ourselves because, you know, but anyway, yeah, they, they just said, hey, we're just coming in to make sure that there's no 
risk of wildfire and that you guys are keeping well and safe and everything's fine. And the second time I went, I witnessed just a complete change in how the police were approaching people and dealing with people and just their attitude was very different, remarkably so. And so it felt like a lot more of a violent and suppressed movement than the first time I was there. Do you think it was the same police or had they been swapped out? I do believe there was a lot of swapping. And they brought in, later on, they brought in special teams from other provinces, like tactical units that are known as the Green Guys, who had a very different approach and attitude towards people and what we were doing. Not to go back onto the police subject, but I mean, there was a lot of atrocious, inexcusable behavior. Like, I never, ever would have believed it. It's, it's not, this is not the place I thought I grew up in, you know? Um, I just wouldn't have believed it if I didn't see it. So that's where the aggression was. I don't consider that all the police are rotten individuals, but but there is something the matter with their whole organization. They're hiring the wrong people. The RCMP are confiscating forest protesters things, like their tents, everything, and they end up in the Teal Jones lot where the Teal Jones employees get first dibs on everything, and then maybe they get dumped back wet and dirty. I guess when I think of my <laughs> big <laughs> experience there... Seeing the camp when the kitchen was really functioning well, when they had a massage table, they had a trauma counselor on as one of the volunteers, they had an information booth. It was just really, really well run. And then to come there and see that an excavator or a bulldozer had just taken that kitchen and pushed it mm -hmm. into the bush. I mean, there was a fair bit of... Well, there was a lot of infrastructure there. There was it was marvelous. You should have seen it. There was there was it was a marvelous kitchen. There was lots of room and shelves and cooler and dishes and everything for a heck of a lot of people. Yeah, and a, a, there was a media tent and they had a generator going and internet connection set up. You know, there was and in fact there was a second kitchen under construction with the idea that winter was going to come and it needed to be more functional in fall weather. And all of those things had been, had been put in place over months and months. And they just, once they got people out of the way, they brought an excavator in and just crushed everything. And, and they, oh, there was a lost and found tent and all this stuff, the dishes, the lost and found stuff, and all the structures. I mean, it just got smashed, run over by an excavator, scattered around. And then the RCMP put out a press release about what a pigsty this place was and what a mess it was. And there was garbage all over the place. Of course there was at that point. They put it there, you know. Anyway, that's what I was referring to. There was trash everywhere. It was heartbreaking. And then to hear that the forest protesters are being blamed for this mess it's so, so wrong on so many levels, and that's hard. It's, yeah, it's not just one level that is wrong. It's not just the logging, which is, which is certainly hugely wrong, but there's so much else that's wrong as well, and that's the hard part. 
Mm, to witness brute force applied up close and personal is really disturbing. For no reason. That was the hard for no part. Reason. For no reason. Why? They could have said, you know what, you guys, we've got this section. Take away all your stuff. And uh, we're going to dismantle the kitchen, or you can dismantle the kitchen, or however they want to do it. But no, the amount of waste I saw up there was really difficult to... The, yeah, the wasted resources, even something as simple as the police. I mean, when I was there just recently, there were three police vehicles that were idling, as far as I know, 24-7. And when I asked one of the officers... He's like, well, I got to keep warm. It sure would be nice, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this thin blue line thing, I mean, it drives me absolutely nuts. It's, it's it, you know, I'm standing there beside Bill Jones listening to him talk to these guys. And the, there's a couple of media guys there and they're saying, excuse us, but, but while we're talking here, where, where's your identification badge? No comment, you know, but what they did have, every one of them was their thin blue line right on their toque, right on their forehead, one of them on their shoulder, one of them on their chest, in direct defiance of their superior officer's instructions. I know it wasn't an order. Why it wasn't an order, I don't know. It was a request or a directive, but it's not the point. I mean, a uniform, the, the definition of the word means all the same. And it means something that's authorized. It has a purpose so that when the public sees it, they recognize it as being that authorized entity. You just don't have people running around putting their little flags on themselves because they like to belong to this club, you know. And, and then to do it knowing full well that it's horribly upsetting to, to people of color. Why would you do that? I mean, it's easy to live in a, a bubble. It's easy to get used to seeing the world through your own privilege. And, and I think it's one thing to, you know, know this intellectually, as I'm sure most of us do, but to be there and witness the police acting completely differently towards people of color, towards indigenous youth, to be a first person witness to that and, you know, know those things from research and living and, but to see it in person. You're not the only person to mention that. So Mm -hmm. this is something you personally saw that the police would preferentially oh absolutely target people treat them differently like i experienced no brutality or violence whatsoever when i was arrested and that was not the case for a lot of a lot of especially indigenous youth so just like having that actually happen having that differential experience and and you know seeing it with my own eyes just the anger that I already had about, you know, the RCMP treatment of people in Canada has just like amplified through that experience. So yeah, I think it's good to get out and witness, be a witness to those things. Absolutely. Police behavior, police bad, RCMP bad behavior needs to be 
witnessed and called out. I definitely saw some stuff that was surprising. Can you speak? To I that? think what was surprising maybe was just how common it was. It's not just like a couple bad incidents. It's just like constant every single day the police are just doing horrible, ridiculous mind-blowing things to people and pretending like it's their job to do like i mean for people who have never had that experience who are like you know white and middle class and their only interaction with the police is a traffic ticket and the cop was really polite about it when i was arrested i was treated very gently and politely and I had a Leatherman in my pocket that they were trying to take away and I just asked if they could just put it in my backpack and I could get it back later and they did and it was no problem. I got all my stuff back. Two young Indigenous girls were also arrested at the same time as me doing the exact same thing as me, just standing in a road holding space and they were absolutely brutalized for doing the exact, like they were in the exact same place as me at the same time disobeying the same police commands and they had their hair pulled and their belongings taken and thrown into the bushes and their faces jammed in the dirt and their cuffs on so tightly that their hands were losing circulation beside me while I was checked numerous times to make sure I was comfortable. From what I have heard, I haven't heard anyone tell me of any protester, anyone on the site who actually behaved in a threatening manner towards the police. Yeah, I don't know about, like, actually threatening, like, people get angry when they see injustice. Like, it's hard for a lot of people to be able to just witness things and not feel called to be outraged. It's outrageous behavior. So when the police are acting outrageous, yeah, there's some people that are going to be like, what are you doing? Like... Oh, I don't count shouting as threatening behavior. Yeah. But I mean, as far as I know, nobody was sabotaging police cars or throwing rocks or making the police feel in any way physically unsafe. No, it, this is a peaceful movement. Nonviolent protest is deeply at the core of what's mm-hmm. happening, and that is, like, very believed. Even if people start expressing like joking around ideas about that out of frustration not even seriously it's squashed really quickly it's like there cannot be that image of this movement it is a non-violent peaceful protest like Mm -hmm. i think i believe that we have a legal right in this country to peacefully protest things that we feel are unjust i definitely saw a lot of restraint you know despite kind of frustrations I saw a lot of really talented people who were acting as liaisons with the police who were able to keep situations calm there was obviously you know there were times when emotions were running high and uh, especially while like watching extractions happen and watching people being removed in unsafe ways where people would like be verbally yelling, but usually it was for access. You know, it was asking the police that why can't we go and see this person? And so there was like times when I witnessed people sort of yelling at police, but it was always from behind a line that nobody was crossing. So there was never any like actual violence that I witnessed. There's nobody throwing things or... Absolutely not. And I think that was a really strong 
point of the movement is that like whatever the police were going to throw at us, we were going to like stick by that principle and not escalate things and just prove that we were there for a very specific purpose. Like people weren't up there to, you know, terrorize cops or vandalize things or, you know, just get out our anger at the system. Like we were there to protect something and, Anything other than that would have taken away from the message. And I remember one person in particular saying something to the effect, if you're angry, we're at the front lines. If you're somewhere behind us talking to the police officers, we're the ones that are going to be taking the brunt of that. Mm -hmm. And you think I'm not angry? I am so angry, he said. But it's not going to help the movement for us to act that anger out so just amazing leadership again Mm -hmm. that I've seen over and over there and leadership as service I guess one event that I was present at that got a lot of media attention this summer was when the police pepper sprayed a very very large group of people at a very public place yeah being involved in that blog was like blog was kind of like I had no idea what I was getting myself into not that the people that were organizing it had any idea what was going to come of it but it was I thought I was doing something completely different when I joined that group of people and wasn't really fully informed about what was happening and I did not get directly pepper sprayed in my face I was very fortunate to be able to pull a hat over my eyes but I was around for the aftermath and all of that so now as the the Capital Daily in Victoria has done more in-depth investigation into like the police's record, like their public statement about that, their explanation for pepper spraying those people has been shown very conclusively to be blatant lie. Like it just like, there's no other way to say that. Like they lied Mm -hmm. very blatantly about their reasoning for pepper spraying those people. And it was caught on film from so many different angles. And, and it's been a conversation like that was months ago and we're talking about it and people are thinking about it and people saw what the police did and are now, if they're paying attention still to the story, they're seeing that they did it for really not a reason at all that I can come up with, like, other than to... <laughs> like, I don't know what their reason for doing that could possibly have been other than to just be mean. It was so American-style that the the police seeing themselves as agents of punishment, mm-hmm. not agents of the law or keeping the peace. I guess yeah. that's interesting that you associate with that with America because that's like very much in Canada's history, but I think it's Canada's history that we don't like to talk about as much and it happens to marginalized groups of people. Mm-hmm. So for you to have that idea that that's like an American thing to do just proves how well the Canadian government has portrayed this image of themselves as peaceful because like the RCMP have been doing that shit to people this specifically indigenous people and marginalized people for their entire existence whereas I feel very grateful that we even have the right to protest like people protesting resource extraction around the world are being killed for that yeah at very high rates I think especially in in the Amazon areas like people Mm -hmm. die trying to protect their resources all over the world all the time this is not an isolated fight in any way people are all over the world right now and for the past very long time been trying to protect their the land at any 
cost to themselves, like put their bodies on the line for in any way that they can possibly come up with and think of. Individually, some of the RCMP, I think, were quite human and and some of them had developed, I, I, I mean, they would come through in their shifts and so they would start to make connections to some of the forest defenders. And I think there's been enough said about the levels of RCMP that were there, and I'm not going to go into that. But certainly, I would I, I would have left, and since then, have left with the question: Why is that happening? How can that be justified? How can the expense be justified for the helicopter circling twice daily, the special forces being brought in by helicopter? the amount of money that's been spent by this, these special detachments is, it begs the question, you know, what's behind that? Like, like it was like a war effort. These people, the RCMP came in primarily from Lake Kawachan and in the mornings, if you're out on the main road, there would be a convoy of police vehicles I don't know what the average would have been. I mean, a lot of times I, I counted oh, 14, 16, 18, 20, 24 cars. Okay, and you know, we're talking paddy wagons and, and then the big old SWAT team truck with no windows and smoked, smoked windshield that you can't see through and a bunch of goons inside that, I guess, I don't know. Yeah, thundering back and forth from Lake Couch and like every day. I don't know how many millions of dollars have been spent. Tens of millions, I'm sure. Tens of millions. I mean, it's 1,500 bucks an hour to put that chopper in the air. They, they reacted with an urgency just, just out of proportion to it. It's ridiculous. I mean, sure, uh, Teal Jones wants to make uh, their money. And yeah, there's, I'm sure they have to redirect some personnel and all that stuff, but they've got other places to log, you know. I mean, there's logging going on They're in the general vicinity while we were there. They're logging second growth and, and um, no, nobody's arguing about that, you know. So they can't, so they can't, they can't knock down a few of these monstrous ancient old trees for a little while. They're just getting bigger and more valuable. They're not going anywhere. So what is the urgency here? wondering whether it was a training thing. You know, I really, I really think it probably is to a degree. It's not hard to imagine. If, if one was in charge of the RCMP, then one would supposedly want to have the capacity to respond to some sort of civil unrest. And if you're gonna do that, I guess you want people that think they know how to do it. These guys obviously didn't, but they thought they did. There's a different kind of human being that should be hired for the job. They've got a bunch of soldiers there. They're not police officers. They're military people, for heaven's sakes. You know, one of the concerns I've had from the start is that the, the misbehavior of the RCMP at Ferry Creek is, is, it's a bit of an energy suck, you know? I mean, it, you, you don't want all the attention going to that. The role of the RCMP in protecting corporate interests has been, I think, revealed to a wider group of people than maybe understood it before. Yeah, I took my brother there this time. I've been 
kind of working on him for a while, but he came. And just, you know, this was just a very short stint, just two days, although it felt a lot longer. His kind of takeaway was like, wow, you have to really be there to see what's actually going on. And if we think we're living in a safe world just because we're not part of that experience, we are, it's an illusion. Well, a world where you cut the last bit of your forest down is not a safe world for anyone. No, but wor- we- <laughs> yeah. go ahead. I'm sorry. A world where RCMP are brutalizing kids is yeah. not a safe one. That was one of the biggest eye-openers for me. Like even, you know, I mean, I have never had experiences with cops before and it's a different thing there. Being out in the middle of nowhere alone with a cop, they behave differently. Mm-hmm. They're violent. They break the mm-hmm. rules. They break their own laws. They are accountable to nobody. And that's a scary, scary reality that it affects everybody. You've been listening to part three of Cortez at Ferry Creek in their own words, an oral history with Cortez locals who went to Ferry Creek to join the forest defenders. This show airs on Saturdays at 1 p.m. for the next few weekends with a rebroadcast Wednesday evenings at 5 p.m. In our next episode, we'll discuss the politics of the blockade, media coverage, government response, and the political complexities. Just a reminder, the views and opinions heard on this program are not endorsed by Cortez Community Radio, its board, its staff, its membership, or any granting agency, but are those of the writer, producer, and guests. As always, thanks for listening.